Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, we're going to be in three different passages of Scripture this morning. We're eventually going to get to Genesis, but before we start there, I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we'll eventually get to Genesis, and then we're going to go to Galatians. So it's going to be Bible drill this morning. If you're old school like me and you still use a real Bible, we will have fun flipping pages. If you're new school and have it on your phone or on an electronic device, you can have fun swiping your finger. I don't care how you brought your copy of God's Word in this morning, as long as we're all on the same page with His Scripture. So, Matthew chapter 21. Many of you are probably familiar with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, in his poems and his essays, he was a very popular writer in American history. In the 1800s, he's kind of the father of the Enlightenment period in uh, the, the American history in the 1800s. And he's very famous for an essay he wrote called Self-Reliance. Let me give you two quotes from this famous essay called Self-Reliance. Here's the first one. You may have heard this before. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Trust thyself. Here's the second thing. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Trust yourself. Nothing brings you peace but yourself. Now these two quotes from this essay have been embedded in our American psyche. Because we are a culture that likes to trust in ourselves. If there ever was a culture on the planet that was to pull you up by your bootstraps, there's no such thing as a free, free lunch. You've got to earn your way. You've got to be uh, self-reliant. It is our American culture. But let me just ask you a question. What happens if you trust in yourself? What happens? Fail. Okay, epic fail. Somebody said, what happens if you find peace in yourself? If that is good news this morning, all of us are sunk. That is not good news. But the culture has bought it hook, line, and sinker. Trust thyself. The only way to find peace is in yourself. Now, what I want us to do before we start Genesis this morning is I want to read one of Jesus' lesser-known parables. You're probably very familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. That's not where we're going this morning. This is another parable in Matthew chapter 21, the the parable of the the two sons. So Matthew chapter 21, let's look real briefly at verses 28 through 32. So Matthew chapter 21, and then we're eventually going to get back to to Genesis, but I want to open with this passage because it's a lesser known parable of Jesus, but I think it illustrates for us this morning what we find in Genesis and later on what we're going to find in the book of Galatians. So Matthew 21 Starting in verse 28, the parable of the two sons. This is the words of Jesus. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same. He answered, I go, sir, 
but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here, and there's a key word that shows up in this passage of Scripture. A changing of the mind. And here's the, here's, the, here's the point of Jesus' story. Jesus says there's a first son that the father says, go do my will, and the son at first says, no, I'm not going to do it. He's rebellious at first, but then later changes his mind and goes and does it. The second son says, oh yeah, boldly, I'll do anything you ask. But then he doesn't do it. And Jesus said, which one is the actual son that does his father's will? The first one that at first said, no, I'm not going to do it, and then did it. Versus the one that said, oh yeah, I'll do it, but then didn't do it. And so Jesus basically says there's two types of responses to the gospel. There are those at first that reject it and say, no way, and then repent, change their mind and believe. And there are those that look at it and say, oh yeah, I'll follow God, but they really don't do it at all. And so Jesus says there's the prostitutes, there's the tax collectors, there's the scum of society that we would look at as the outrageous sinners. They're actually going to heaven because they've repented of their sins, they've trusted in Christ and salvation, and they are saved. Whereas there's the Pharisees, there's the religious people, there's quote-unquote maybe the moral people, the good upright people that act like they're in God's good graces. They put on a good pretend job, they give lip service to it, but they never were saved in the first place. They never trusted Christ. Christ. They never repented and believed, and so they're not going to heaven, and that's very shocking. It's very shocking to the people in Jesus' day that were first listening to this parable, and it's shocking to us because what's our default mode of thinking? Our default mode as Christians and as Americans is this. Good people go to heaven, bad people don't. That's basically what we believe. If you're really, really good, then you'll go to heaven because as a matter of fact, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and what gets you in God's good graces is you being good but if you're bad there's no hope for you you're you're not going to heaven because you've been bad that's what that's what we're 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 brought up to think in this self-reliant culture but that flies directly in the face of the gospel because the gospel says there's an equal playing ground there's nobody good we're all sinners We're all in desperate need of salvation. All of us need grace. All of us need the gospel. All of us need Jesus. All of us need forgiveness. And and we're not saved by being good. We're not saved by earning our way to heaven. We're not saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. We're not saved by trying harder to be a good person. We're saved by grace. And sometimes religious people don't like that message. Moralistic religious people don't like the message of the gospel because it threatens their security because their security is in what they must do to earn God's favor and when they hear words like grace and they hear words like salvation and forgiveness and and things that I can't earn it but Jesus earned it for me they get a little uncomfortable and they begin to maybe maybe actually come against those that believe in grace so here's our main point for this morning Here's the big ticket idea that emerges from this text in Genesis. We see it in Matthew. We're going to see it in Galatians. It's simply this. Those seeking 
acceptance by God through religious self-reliance will always threaten those seeking acceptance by God through sovereign grace. Are you seeking acceptance by God through your self-reliant religion, what you can do, or are you relying upon what God has done in his grace? And so there may come a time where if you truly believe in the, in the doctrine of grace, in the gospel of grace, and salvation by grace, there may be some religious people that may come against you. They may come and threaten you. Now, we often think that the threats to Christianity may come from those, you know, immoral, atheistic, liberal people out there that are coming against Christianity. And yes, those people do come against Christianity. But have you ever thought about how sometimes religious people people that are very, very comfortable in how prideful they are in their religion may actually come against those that believe in grace. I want you to think about that this morning. It may be a different way of thinking, but I think it relates to Genesis 21. Because Genesis 21 shows us the stark difference between self-reliant religion and God's grace. We see it illustrated in Genesis 21, and Paul shows us in Genesis or in Galatians chapter 4 how these two things relate. So what I want to do is let's turn to, Galatians, or to Genesis chapter 21. What I want to do this morning is I want to read Genesis 21. I want to make a few comments. It's a, it's a very straightforward story. It's a very straightforward account. It's the birth of Isaac. But then what I want to do is I want to take what Paul does with this passage of Scripture in Galatians and explain to you how it applies to us today. So let's, let's look at Galatians chapter 21. And this is on the heels of what we had last week. If you remember last week, Abraham lied a second time with his wife Sarah, said she was his sister. The king Abimelech came, got a dream from God and there was this issue going on, and, and finally, you know, God works sovereignly to bring things about, even in the midst of Abraham's sin. And so we get to the moment that we've been waiting for. What's the moment of truth that we've been waiting for all these chapters? The birth of Isaac. So let's see it happen. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son whom was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the moment we've been waiting for, the supernatural birth of Isaac. And the scripture there in verse 1 says, the Lord visited Sarah. He visited Sarah. It's an expression in the original language that God came in power. God came in grace. This was, this was a supernatural visitation. A 90-year-old woman doesn't normally give birth. So God visited her. She has her baby. They name him Isaac, which means laughter, because it is pretty laughable that a 90-year-old woman is going to give birth. And then Abraham circumcises him on the eighth day, as he was told by God, as an outward sign of the covenant. And so she's given birth, 
It's hilarious. It's funny. His name's Isaac. How can a 90-year-old woman give birth? The son is finally born. It's the son of promise. Everything's great. End of story, right? Wrong. Let's keep reading the rest of the chapter. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands? They tried to speed up God's process of bringing about a child, and they said, hey, listen, let, we've got this great idea. Hagar is this Egyptian slave girl. Abraham, why don't you go into her, and you can produce offspring, and you know what happened? Ishmael was born, and it caused a lot of friction in the families. If you remember, Hagar was mistreated by Sarah, and she had to flee to the wilderness, and Ishmael was going to be a wild donkey of a man. Well, now here we go. Fast forward. Ishmael's 14 years old. And how does Ishmael, the apple of Abraham's eye, I mean, Ishmael's been Abraham's son for 14 years. He may be thinking to himself, I'm the son of the promise. Everything that Abraham has is going to be given to me. I'm Abraham's number one son. I'm the apple of Abraham's eye. How does Ishmael, this 14-year-old teenager, look at the birth of Isaac? Well, let's keep reading and find out. Verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that would be Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone... She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Isaac now is 14 years old. The apple of his father's eye, Abraham. But yet there comes this point in time where Isaac is born. And things begin to change. And so let me kind of explain this weaning thing, because you may think, what's the, what's the whole issue here with weaning? You'd normally wait till a child was three years old before you'd wean them off a of mother's milk. And here's the reason why. The mortality rate in those ancient cultures was very high. 
You had the desert climate. You had disease. And so they really wanted to make sure that the, that the baby was going to last through infancy. And so when they, the, the child was about three years old, they would wean it off its mother's milk. It had kind of survived that, that dangerous, tumultuous time of infancy. And then the parents would throw a great party. And that's what Abraham does. He throws this huge party because Isaac's now three years old. He's been weaned. But yet what does Ishmael do? Sarah sees Ishmael... And the text there says, verse 9, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to him, laughing. Laughing. It's a play on words here. What does Isaac's name mean? Laughter. You can translate this, Ishmael was Isaacing. Ishmael was Isaacing. He was laughing. Now, at first glance, we may think, well, maybe he's just a goofy 14-year-old teenager, and he's laughing at his little toddler son doing weird stuff. How many of you have toddler kids and you're a goofy teenager and you laugh at your little brother? Some of you can raise your hands here this morning. All of us have kind of laughed at the goofy things that a toddler's done. This is not what the word laughter means here. The actual Hebrew that's used here means to laugh evilly, to scoff, to persecute, to have a malevolent type of of laughter, a scoffing type of laughter. And Sarah observes this and she's very troubled. She says, no way. This 14-year-old boy is a threat to Isaac. She goes to Abraham and says, send out Hagar and Ishmael. Get them out of the family. Send them away. And Abraham's bothered by this because he loves Ishmael. Ishmael is his son. He's very grieved. He's very displeased. And and he begins to weep. He begins to cry. He's very very emotional over the fact that he's going to have to send his son out. But then God says to him, you need to do it. Because verse 12 is very important. Verse 12, it says, God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's not going to come through Ishmael. It's through Isaac. God is very clear here. The promised line, the Israelites, eventually leading to Jesus, the son of the promise, is going to come through Isaac. It's not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to come through Isaac. Isaac's the son of the promise. Isaac is the supernatural son. Isaac was the son that was born to a 90-year-old woman. Ishmael was the son that was born when you guys tried to finagle things. When you tried to rely upon yourself, that's how Ishmael was produced. Isaac is the son that's produced supernaturally through God's miraculous grace. And then God says, Ishmael is going to be a great nation. And tradition tells us that the Arabs, the Arab nations, have come from Ishmael. But he's not the one through whom the promise is going to come. So Abraham is grief-stricken, and he sends his his son, and Hagar out into the wilderness. Now, if you remember the first time Hagar went to the wilderness, it was when Sarah was mistreating her. She's a pregnant woman. This is time she's pregnant with Ishmael. She flees to the wilderness, and she thinks she's going to die in the wilderness, and an angel shows up to her and, and hears her. Remember, Ishmael means God hears. And here we have a second time. They've run out of water, and she doesn't can't bear to see her own son die. So she sticks her, her 14-year-old son under a bush and goes a bow shot away and basically just waits for her son to die in the heat. I mean, think about the, 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 the feelings you have as a mom. I can't bear to see my, my, my son die. It's just better for me to be at a distance. I, I can't hear him cry. I can't hear him groan. She just kind of abandons him because she doesn't know what to do. But then an angel shows up. An angel comforts her just like the angel did the first time she was in the wilderness, opens her eyes, and she sees a well. There's water. God does provide. 
And then basically you find out what happens to Ishmael. He grows up, he lives in the wilderness, he's a good hunter, and basically he takes an Egyptian wife. What's Ishmael known for in the Bible? He's not the promised son like Isaac. He's a, a man that lived out in the wilderness. He was kind of outside the social conventions. The Bible also said he was a wild donkey of a man. He was always going to be at warfare with his brothers. He, he, he would be just kind of this, this outcast who ends up being sent away from Abraham's family. But he's known for mocking Isaac, for persecuting Isaac, for maligning Isaac. And that's the story at face value. Isaac, born supernaturally to Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael, born to Abraham and Hagar through self-reliance, through not trusting in God, through trying to speed things up. So what I want to do is to show you how Paul takes this story and shows what it means for us today. So let's go to Galatians chapter 4, and I want to show you the difference between the bondage the bondage of self-reliant religion and the freedom of grace. The bondage of religion versus the freedom of grace. So turn over to Galatians chapter 4, and as you're turning there, I want you to think about your own spiritual birth as a Christian. Were, were you born again because you were such a good person? Were you born again because somehow you earned it? Were you born again because somehow you deserved it? Uh, was there something, humanly speaking, that got you into a position of salvation because you had worked so hard to get it? No. The Bible says spiritually, God in His grace caused us to be born again. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 2, 1-5, through 5, as you're turning to Galatians, let me read to you Ephesians 2, 1-5. through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our spiritual condition. We were lost, we were dead, we were, we were enslaved to Satan, we were in bondage. Verse 4, but God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. We were spiritually dead. God made us alive in Christ by grace. It's by grace you've been saved. If you're a Christian here today, you did not earn it. You do not deserve it. You cannot work for it. There's nothing you can do in your own power to bring about salvation. It's a free gift of grace. And so Ishmael represents religion. Ishmael represents self-reliance. Ishmael represents you trying to earn God's grace by being a good person, by obeying the Ten Commandments. Anything that you do in your own power to earn God's approval, that's what Ishmael represents. Isaac, on the other hand, represents grace, God's power, God's sovereignty, God's blessing, the supernatural act of grace in your life. And so as we come to Galatians chapter 4, Paul is going to say there's two paths. There's the path of Hagar and Ishmael on one hand, and there's the path of Sarah and Isaac on the other hand. 
And he's going to take the story that we just saw in in Genesis 21, and he's going to flesh it out for us, and he's going to say this is is a symbolism of self-reliant religion versus the freedom of grace. So let's see how Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 4. So Galatians chapter 4, hopefully you've turned there. Hopefully you have time to get there. Uh, Verse 21. Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, okay? One by a slave woman, Ishmael, and one by a free woman, Isaac. I'm kind of adding the names in there just so you can kind of catch Paul's train of thought. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Maybe your translation has something like symbolically or allegorically or metaphorically. It's, it's the Greek word meaning Paul's going to make an allegory here. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28 is very key. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so also it is now but what does the scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman so brothers we are not children of the slave but of the free woman now this is a difficult passage to interpret and we're coming into galatians halfway through the book And I don't have time to unpack everything that this passage of Scripture has to say, but I do want to just tell you that there's this group of Judaizers. They were false teachers in Galatians who were trying to take these Gentile Christians back to bondage. They were basically saying, in order for you to be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to eat the laws, uh, obey the laws of Moses to the T, all these Old Testament laws, you've got to obey the dietary rules. It's not just Jesus alone for salvation, it's not just grace alone, it's not just faith alone, it's, it's Jesus, faith, grace, plus these other things you've got to do. And so these Judaizers were coming into the church at Galatians saying, you've got to add all these requirements onto salvation. And that was causing bondage to the people. Paul's coming against that and saying, no, it's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. There's, there's no other qualifications upon salvation. It's not circumcision. It's not what you eat. It's not a dietary rule. It's not all these rules and regulations. It's simple faith in Christ. And so what he does here is he says, I'm going to give an allegory. Now, we need to be careful when Paul says this is an allegory because it actually happened. Just because he says it's an allegory doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? So historically, Genesis chapter 21 did happen in historical context, a real concrete story. But Paul basically says, I'm going to give a metaphor. I'm going to give an illustration. I'm going to give an allegory. I'm I'm going to give a symbolism. I'm going to show the difference between two ways to live. There's the self-reliant, religious, pull yourself up by your bootstrap, you got to earn it type way of living. That's Ishmael and Hagar. And I'm going to transpose that or I'm going I'm to contrast that with Isaac. 
the son of promise, grace, the freedom that comes in salvation as a free gift of grace. And so what Paul is saying is, if you rely upon religion, if you rely upon works, if you rely upon trying to earn your keep, if you try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, he says that's bondage. That is slavery. That's going to enslave you. That's not true freedom. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about being legalistic, about man-made religion. Um, Those of you that have horses will understand this, and Spurgeon says it in a way that most people can't. Um, He says this, Spurgeon, The law is the most rigorous master in the world. No wise man would love its service. For after all you've done, the law never gives you a thank you for it, but says, go on, keep going on, keep going on. The poor sinner trying to be saved by law is like a blind horse going round and round a mill and never getting a step further, but only being continually whipped. The faster he goes, the more work he does, and the more he's tired, so much the worse for him. That's religion. You're like a blind horse going around and around in circles, being whipped by your master and getting nowhere. And Paul says, that's Hagar. It's this works-based type of system where you try to earn your salvation by being good or being religious. And it's frustrating. It's man-centered. It doesn't produce freedom. But Isaac, Sarah, that represents freedom. It represents God's supernatural power, God's grace, the new birth, the fact that you can't produce your own salvation, the fact that you can't earn it, the fact that God must come to you in the freeness of his grace and grant it to you as a gift of salvation. It's not self-reliance, as Ralph Waldo Emerson would say. It's totally casting yourself at the mercy of God because you are helpless. And Paul says there, you are children of Isaac. Look there at verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Christians, we are of Isaac. We're not of Ishmael, we're of Isaac. We are children of the promise. But what did Ishmael do? He laughed, he mocked, he made fun of. Paul says here he persecuted. So the religious persecutes the grace. There are those of Isaac and there are those of Ishmael. And here's the issue. Those that are of Ishmael, those that are works-based in their religion, those that believe that you've got to earn it, those that are, that are trying so hard to earn God's approval, those type of people are threatened by grace. They are threatened by grace. And sometimes, if you can even imagine that, sometimes religious people will actually persecute Christians. Religious people. Now, we often think that, oh, those, those outlandish, immoral, non-religious people, they're going to persecute Christians. But sometimes, if you can even imagine, sometimes religious, moral, upright people may come against Christians who believe in grace. Because here's what happens. A religious person's pretty touchy. And they're pretty insecure. Because they're always trying to work for salvation. They're always trying to earn it. They're always walking on eggshells because they're not really sure if they've done enough 
to earn God's grace, and so they become self-reliant, and then they even become critical and judgmental because they know they're not living up to the standard, and so they begin to look at others that aren't living up to the standard, and they become judgmental, they become legalistic, they become critical, and they become threatened by grace. And what ends up happening is they become hostile to the gospel because they're threatened by the gospel. Listen to what John Stott says. The persecution, this is a radical statement. I don't know if I fully agree with it, but I thought it was provocative. The persecution of the true church is not always by the world who are strangers, but by our half-brothers. Religious people, the nominal church, the greatest, this is where it's radical, the greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. I don't know if you agree with that, but what he's saying is the greatest enemy to the church today are those Christians that are just Christians in name only. That don't believe in grace. You see, here's what the gospel does. If you really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, it cuts down the middle between religious people and non-religious people. And there's probably both types of groups of people in this room today. The religious and the non-religious. Let's talk about the non-religious. Maybe you're here today and you would consider yourself a non-religious person. You're not really sure why you're here today. Maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you came out of curiosity. You, you kind of give lip service to God, but, but you kind of make your own way. You're non-religious. Basically, you believe in whatever you want to believe. You have your own set of morals. You may be vaguely spiritual. You kind of just live by the beat of your own drum. You, you don't worry about God's law. You don't worry about God's standards. You basically live however you want to live. You make your own moral choices. You make your own spirituality, and you may give lip service to God. You see, the gospel's a threat to you because the gospel says you're a sinner and you're accountable. The gospel's a threat to you because it says you're under God's wrath and you need to be saved. And oftentimes what I've found with people that are non-religious... They can be religiously non-religious. They can be very intolerantly non-religious. They can be staunchly, staunchly religious in their non-religion. And they can become just as superior and just as intolerant and just as arrogant of those that don't believe in them the same way that they do. So you can have non-religious people that are very, very religious in their non-religion, if that makes sense. Because what are they putting their trust in? themselves i'm the captain of my own soul trust thyself i'm the one who's going to be in charge of my life and the message of the cross is offensive to them because in the end these people don't see their need for a savior they don't see their need for a savior because deep down they believe i'm my own savior my spirituality whatever i believe i'm my own savior and we're pretty familiar with the non-religious people, aren't we? We can, we can pick them out. The non-religious people, yeah, they stand against Christianity. Let me talk about the religious people. The religious people. It's also offensive, the gospel. Because religious people want to somehow pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They want to earn their salvation. They want to somehow think, that they have this thought process, there's no such thing as a free lunch and if God's going to accept me, there must be something I have to do, so I will set up rules and regulations, I will become very legalistic, and I will try to earn God's acceptance, and if other people don't toe the line with the way I believe, I'll be judgmental upon them, and so I'll be very, very religious. But in the end, they don't need Jesus as Savior because they're trusting in their own goodness as their Savior. So whether you trust in your spirituality, or in your atheism, or in your goodness, or in your religion, anything else that you trust in besides Jesus, 
means you don't need the gospel. And it all comes down to worship. Here's the bottom line. It's worship. What do you worship? Every single person here worships something. The religious person worships their ability to be good. They're putting their trust in their ability to keep the rules, their ability to earn their salvation, their ability to be a good person. They're putting their trust in their goodness. And so their Savior becomes their ability to be good. That's what they're worshiping. They're worshiping their ability to be good. The non-religious person, they are worshiping also. They just happen to worship other things. Anything that you value and treasure, you can worship. It can be a relationship. It can be a career. It can be a job. It can be a marriage. It can be sex. It can be sports. It can be a pursuit. It can be a hobby. Anything that you put all of your eggs in that basket and say, that gives me ultimate meaning, you're worshiping that. But here's the problem. When you worship those types of things, they're always going to fail you, and they control you. What you worship, if it's not Jesus, will control you. Because think about it. You're always living in fear if that thing's going to be taken away. What if that thing I treasure is taken away from me? Or what if that person stops loving me? Or what if all my dreams and aspirations go, go poof just like that? You're putting all of your stock in things or people besides Jesus, and it ends up controlling you, and it's in bondage because you're worshiping those things. You've elevated those things to a position of God, and they end up controlling you. So here's the issue. Both the religious person and the non-religious person have the same motive when it comes to God. Here, here's the same motive. Whether you're religious or non-religious, your motive is this. I want to maintain my independence from God. I will maintain my independence from God by being good, hoping in the end that he loves me. I'm not really sure if God likes me, but I'm sure going to try really hard to earn it. The non-religion says, I don't really care if God likes me or not. I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm going to maintain my independence from God by living however I want. Either way, it's bondage. So, it should not surprise us when true Christians get picked on by both sides. The non-religious person is going to pick on the Christian. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why, why are you obeying the Bible? Why, why is your lifestyle different? The non-religious person is going to pick on the true Christian. We understand that. But sometimes the religious person picks on the Christian and says, well, you've got to do it my way, and it's got to be this way. And they set up all these legalistic rules, and they become superior and prideful, and they don't just rest in the finished work of Christ and in grace. And they get nervous when you start talking about the fact that, that it's all of grace and we don't have to earn it and we don't have, there's something that we have to do. They, they, get, they get nervous with that idea. Listen to Martin Luther. We ought therefore to be careful to learn the doctrine of grace. For that is our only support against these infinite slanders and offenses in our comfort and all the temptations and persecutions. We see that the world must be offended by the pure doctrine of the gospel and will continually cry out that no good comes from it. Did you hear what he said? The world's going to cry out against the true gospel. There's no good from that. So here's what the non-religious person's going to cry out to the gospel. They're going to look at the gospel and say, it's not good. The non-religious person's going to say, the gospel's not good because it means I'm accountable. 
and I'm helpless, and Jesus is the only way, and I don't like that. It's not good. The religious person is going to look at the pure gospel and say, it's not good, because that means that it's out of my hands, and, and, and I, don't, I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I, I don't work for it. I, I don't have to do something except for trust in Christ. So both the religious and the non-religious person look at the gospel and say, it's no good. Because the pure gospel will always offend. If you're here and you're non-religious and you're religious, and even if you're a Christian, the gospel is always going to offend you. Because what does the gospel say? The gospel says, we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are hell-bound without God's intervening grace in our lives. We stand under his wrath, we stand under his condemnation, we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can't save ourselves, we can't atone for our own sins. We've got to cast ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ alone for salvation, trust in his finished work, believe that he died and he rose again, that he's coming back again, and without that we are hopeless and it's all of grace that's offensive it's offensive to the non-religious it's offensive to the religious it's offensive to the world because in the end it puts jesus christ as lord of lords and king of kings and he is master over our lives not us whether you're non-religious you're the master of your own life if you're religious you think you're the master of your own life but you're in bondage so there may be three types of people here this morning in this worship service. Some of you are non-religious. Again, I'm not sure why you're here, but I'm glad you're here. And you've stepped into Emmanuel Baptist Church today. Maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you came out of curiosity. And you would consider yourself, you know, I'm not a very religious person. I don't really believe this whole thing about God. I'm not sure. I'm kind of testing the waters. But one thing I do know is that I'm just kind of trying to trust in myself. I have my own belief system. Here's my word to you. If you've come in here today that you're non-religious, thank you for being here. We are so happy that you're here. We love you. But here's the message. You've got to repent and believe in Jesus. You've got to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Believe in his death, burial, and resurrection is the only way to save you if you're non-religious here. Now, some of you are very religious, and you wouldn't think you're religious, but, but deep down you are religious. You may give love service to God. You may have been in church your whole life. You may have thought, you know, I've been to church my whole life. I've sung in the choir. I've given tithes and offerings. But you're trusting in your ability to be good. You're trusting in what you can do for God, not what God has done for you. You are trusting in your own righteousness. And you come into this place, and you're very insecure. Religious people are very insecure. I'm just going to say that flat out. Why are they insecure? because they never really know if God loves them. They never really know if I've experienced the deep, deep love of Jesus. There must be something, at the end of the day, there must be something I have to do to get God to love me, and so I'm working hard to try to get God to love me by doing all these things. That produces frustration and insecurity, and what ends up happening to the religious person in their insecurity, in their frustration, they begin to turn on others in legalism and in pride and in judgmentalism and trying to make the standard themselves and putting that upon everybody else, and they're living in bondage. And my message to you today, if that describes you, if you're a religious person today, the same message for you is the same as the non-religious person. You've got to repent and believe in Jesus. You've got to trust in Christ for salvation. You've got to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross and believe that he died on the cross and rose again and put your trust in him, not in yourself. There's probably a third group here. Hopefully this describes most of the people in this room, the third group. There's a third group of us who believe that we're helpless we're hopeless, we are hellbound, 
if it were not for the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we've come to the point where we realize that we can't do it. We've come to the point where we realize I'm accountable to God. I am under God's justice if I don't believe in Jesus. And we've repented and we have believed in Jesus. We've cast ourselves at the mercy of Christ alone to save us by his blood, by his grace. And we're not trying to be righteous. We're not trying to be spiritual. We're not trying to do anything in our own power. We are simply trusting in what Christ has already done for us. And we're accepting the free gift of salvation. Now, here's a warning this morning. I don't fully understand this, but one thing we see in this Galatians passage. In verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. Whether we like it or not, Hagar and Ishmael were cast out. They were sent out of Abraham's presence. They were cast out. They were sent away. Here's the implication for us today. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, on the day of judgment, you too will be cast out. You too will be sent away. You too will be sent out of the presence of God in a place called hell of eternal conscious torment. So the non-religious person, the religious person, both who are trusting in their own ability, will be cast out. The only person that will be accepted into God's kingdom on that final day is the person that said, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trying to be self-reliant. I've cast myself at the mercy of what Jesus can do. So my final word to you today is don't be an Ishmael. Be an Isaac. And today, you can become a child of the promise. You can become one who has access to God through his son, Jesus Christ, by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ alone as a free gift of grace. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I'm not sure where everybody is in this room. I can't look into hearts. I wish I could. That's the Holy Spirit's job. If you're here today and you would consider yourself a non-religious kind of a, a person that doesn't, hasn't really, you don't really buy all this, but you're, you're just here today out of curiosity or whatever, you were invited by a friend, I, I would ask you during this moment to really ask God to seek your heart and, and to reveal himself to you and that you would stop trusting in whatever you're trusting in and fully trust in Jesus alone. If you're a religious person here today, and that may be hard to admit, but deep down in your heart you know that you're not trusting in Christ, you're trusting in your ability to do good. You're trusting in your legalism. You're trusting in what you can produce. If that describes you, would you ask God to search your heart and find grace in Christ alone instead of trusting in yourself? For the rest of you here today that are true believers, that you are Christians, would you just spend some time praising God that he saved you by grace? that you didn't have to earn it, you don't deserve it, but God chose to give it to you through Jesus Christ. And would you just afresh this morning praise him for the gift of salvation that comes by a free gift of grace. Let's just spend some time in silent prayer asking God to search our hearts that we may worship him. Thank you for your grace. We don't want to be a people that 
in the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, trust ourselves or find peace in ourselves. We've, that's not good news. Good news is that we can find peace in you, Jesus. And we can find everything we need by trusting in you, Jesus. So wherever we may find ourselves this morning, Lord, maybe we've been Christians for many, many years. Maybe we're here just for the first time. We, we really don't understand this whole thing. Wherever we may be this morning, where we all come to that point where we have stopped trusting in ourselves and we have cast ourselves at the mercy of you, King Jesus, and trusted in you alone and received your free gift of salvation by grace. And Father, sometimes when I stand up here as a pastor and talk about salvation and, and s- people just kind of tune out because I've, I've done that, I've, I've saved. Father, may we never get over the fact that you saved us when you didn't have to. May we never get over the fact that you've showered us with mercy by Jesus dying on the cross. May we never get over the fact that you've poured out your Holy Spirit in our hearts. May we never get over the fact that you have taken us who were dead in sins and made us alive in Christ and you've given us the new birth and you've given us forgiveness and you've cleansed us. May we never get over that. And Father, if we're one here this morning that's gotten over that, help us to to have a renewed excitement for the gospel. That we would be excited by grace. Not ho-hum. And not just kind of taking it for granted, but we'd be in awe every day that you saved us. And we'd be in awe every day of your grace. And we'd be in awe of every day of your, of your forgiveness. We'd be in awe of you, Jesus, that you would receive all the glory. In those times, Jesus, when we try to win brownie points with God by trying to do good or earn our way or tr- try to somehow be a good person in order to get to heaven... When we start to think that way, would you remind us that, Jesus, you finished the work, and it's a free gift of grace. And that's not an excuse for us to go live however we want. It's not an excuse for us just to go out and and live immoral lifestyles. It's a motivation for us to live holy lifestyles because you've saved us. Let that be the motivation for holiness, the fact that you've saved us by grace. And if there's anybody here today that needs to trust in you for salvation, may today be their day of salvation. May today be the day they cast themselves at your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.